Hey everyone, this is Cody, and you are listening to the 10 Talks Podcast. In this episode, I speak with the philosopher Kasim Kassam on the topic of extremism. Dr. Kassam is a professor of philosophy at the University of Warwick, and has made contributions to many different areas of the field. A lot of his earlier work focuses on more traditional topics in epistemology. Topics like knowledge, the concept of self-knowledge, the relationship between perception and knowledge, and transcendental epistemology. Recently, though, Professor Kassam has been doing work in what has been called vice epistemology, and he's been applying this work to real-world issues. He's written on the topic of terrorism and radicalization, the topic of conspiracy thinking, and most recently on the topic of extremism. Professor Kassam has a forthcoming book on extremism, and the conversation that you're about to listen to is a discussion of that book. Now, obviously, the conversation doesn't even come close to exhausting the contents of the book, and I highly recommend that everyone buy it. And I'll include a link to where you can pre-order the book in the show notes. I really appreciate Professor Kassam taking the time to speak with me. I think that this is a very timely topic. While extremism has obviously always been a part of human societies, the propensity for extremist thinking around the globe seems to be on the rise, at least relative to the past couple of decades or so. I mean, over the past decade, we've been thrust into an era that some commentators have called the age of post-truth. We now seem to live in a world in which our social epistemology has been completely shattered, and our collective trust in institutions has been greatly diminished. And we also live in a world of increasing wealth inequality, increasing globalization, and increasing technological change. And all of these factors, I think, have led to a greater propensity among the populace to adopt extremist mindsets and to engage in conspiracy thinking. So with that as preamble, buckle your seatbelts. Here we go. Welcome to Tent Talks on the Shelter from the Storm podcast network, a place to talk the rain away with your host, Cody Turner. Storm coming, Mr. Wayne. I thought we could start if you could just kind of give a summary of your intellectual history and the different issues in philosophy that you work on, and then also just briefly articulate what got you interested in studying the topic of extremism. Well, so I started out in philosophy working on uh, Kantian epistemology, essentially, particularly transcendental arguments. And uh, most of my career, I think, was, was spent as a kind of analytic Kantian epistemologist. Um, and then about um, five years ago, maybe slightly longer, my interest started to shift. So first of all, I started to work on epistemic vices um, and a project called Vice Epistemology. Um, and then that led me in a kind of more practical direction to think about epistemic vices in relation to um, a whole lot of things like, you know, medicine, um, conspiracy theories, terrorism, extremism, and so on. So it started off really as a project of trying to apply um, vice epistemology um, to these various domains. Um, And I then became interested in these subjects just as subjects in their own right. Uh, So I ended up writing a book on extremism in which I actually say very little about uh, epistemic vices. Um, And my current project uh, is actually on the philosophy of terrorism. Um, So this is the direction in which I'm now 
moving and it's a complete change from my earlier career. Yeah. And I know you've written a lot on conspiracy theories as well. I started reading one of the papers that you've written on that topic and maybe we'll, we can get into a little mm. bit of that. Cause I think some of that overlaps with the extremism stuff. Sure. Yeah. Um, so one thing that I thought maybe we could start with, and this is something that you mentioned in the beginning of one of the first chapters of your book is the fact that some people think that there's no point in giving an objective analysis of extremism. There is no non, there is no neutral nonpartisan analysis of extremism, but really this is just a term that's kind of applied for political reasons. And that's used to, to delegitimize someone who you have political differences with. So, but I think you do a good job of disabusing that notion and clarifying why there is really an objective sense of extremism here that is worth conceptually analyzing. Could you just maybe say a few words about that? Yeah, so I think it it, it is true that the label is used um, as a term of abuse. It is used to delegitimize political opponents. I think that's all true. Uh, but it doesn't follow from that that there isn't such a thing as extremism or that it isn't possible to use the label uh, in a more um, appropriate and objective uh, way, and that's what I uh, try to try, try to do. So, so, I mean, someone who says, um, as people often do, that there's really no such thing as extremism, or that it's all relative, or uh, it's not a useful concept. I mean, I, 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 I guess I'd want to ask them about an example that I start start out with in the book. So, this is the example of uh, a young Jordanian pilot. Uh, who was shot down, uh, or whose plane crashed anyway, uh, over over um, uh, over Raqqa, uh, and was captured by ISIS, and uh, they uh, put him in a cage, doused him with petrol, uh, and set fire to him, and filmed the whole thing, and um, released the film uh, on the internet. Uh, now, <laughs> I think someone who says that you know there isn't such a thing as extremism or that it's not a helpful concept is going to have to face up to cases like that. I mean, what do we really want to say about um, uh, actions like that? Or what are we going to say about the the ideas and the thinking that lead people to do stuff like that? Um, uh, or, of course, if you go further back in history, there are many, you know, there are many examples. I mean, the Nazis, what were they? Um, uh, so I, uh, I think my challenge to someone who wants to say that, you know, there's really no such thing or, or that it's all relative or it depends on your point of view is to say, well, listen, you know, if you th if you are seriously telling me that you think that there's a, you know, that, you know, that it's, it, it might be respectable to think that, you know, that ISIS are, are, is not an extremist organization or that their ideology isn't an extremist ideology, um, I, I, I I find that an I find that incredible, actually. Um, but having said that, um, of course, uh, when we talk about extremism, I mean, we do need to acknowledge um, that there is at least an element of um, what you might call relativity. Um, so we don't want to be kind of crude relativists about extremism, but but I mean, uh, of course, there are senses in which what counts as an extremist view is relative. So I think it's a very delicate balance between rejecting the kind of crude relativism, rejecting the idea that there's no real phenomenon here, versus going the other way and completely denying that there's any element of relativity um, in talk of extremism. So what I what I try to do in the in the book that I've written on this is to kind of find a middle way between these two between these two um, extremes. But in the end, I think that the concept, the idea of extremism, is useful 
uh, and the test for its usefulness is 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 well, I mean, my book hopefully uh, um, uh, you know makes a kind of practical case for why this is a helpful concept. Yeah, my 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 sense is that people are prone to abuse the term and misapply it where it doesn't belong as a kind of political attack. And that that's definitely increased. But at the same time, I feel like there has also been an increase in actual extremism in the world in very various different degrees over the past like decade or so. Uh, maybe we can talk about more about that later and how things like social media have played a role in fueling that. But in, in your book, you defend what you call a psychological conception of extremism, mm. and in mm -hmm. particular, what you call mindset extremism. Yeah. I do want to drill down and kind of get into different features of that view, but you juxtapose that view with two different approaches to extremism, what you call methods extremism and ideological extremism. So I thought maybe we could start with those and then kind of turn to your position and, and unpack it a bit more. So first, uh, maybe we could begin with ideological extremism. Could you just... Maybe explain what an ideology is and what this basic approach consists of. Yeah, in. yeah. Um, so uh, when I talk about um, an ideology, I'm essentially talking about a kind of political worldview, a set of concepts, ideas, assumptions, and narratives, which each of us uses to make sense of the political world. Um, so in my sense, fascism is an ideology, uh, Marxism is an ideology, liberalism is an ideology. So suppose next that you think of ideologies as located in what you might call ideological space. Um, so the thought is that 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 if you if you look at a series of ideologies, you can kind of you can locate them in in, in ideological space. Um, and I think of ideological space as having lots of different dimensions. So one perhaps most familiar dimension of ideological space is the left to right dimension. Um, so if you think that you if you think of ideological space as being organized along that dimension, then you can locate ideologies in that space according to how left wing they are or how right wing they are. Um, so so moving from the extreme left, you might have um, the, the kind of ultra Marxist ideology of the Khmer Rouge in, uh, in, in Cambodia. Um, and then kind of moving towards the, the, you know, the, the center, you have kind of various centrist, uh, liberal democratic ideologies, social democratic ideologies, and then moving to the right, um, fascism, Nazism, uh, white supremacism. So, so that's one way of... of um, uh, putting ideologies on the map. Uh, and an ideological extremist on this view is simply someone who subscribes to an extremist ideology. And an extremist ideology is simply an ideology that is at one or other end of uh, the, a spectrum of ideologies. H however, uh, the left to right spectrum is not the only spectrum. And there are intuitively extremist ideologies that are very hard to think of in terms of left and right. So going back to my uh, example of ISIS, um, I, I mean, I would want to argue that the ideology of ISIS is almost a sort of paradigm extremist uh, ideology. Is it left wing? Is it right wing? I mean, it's hard to say. Um, it doesn't seem to me to be a, a left-wing ideology. I mean, there are people who argue that um, it has quite a bit in common with with, with fascism, um, and that would make it a right-wing ideology if you think that fascism is on the right, and that actually is also not a completely straightforward issue. Um, but in the case of in the case of ISIS, um, um, we, we need to think of it as an extremist ideology, not in the, in terms of left and right, but 
uh, along some other dimension of ideological space. So another relevant um, um, dimension of ideological space is the authoritarianism spectrum. So ideologies can vary according to how authoritarian they are. Right. So on that spectrum, um, I think you know uh, both ideologies of the extreme left and the extreme right are going to are both going to count as authoritarian. They're going to be on the same place on the authoritarianism spectrum, whereas uh, uh, you know anarchism, for example, might be uh, on the opposite end of the authoritarianism spectrum, a highly anti-authoritarian ideology. Uh, another relevant spectrum is 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 the is the pro-violence spectrum. Ideologies vary according to their views of violence. So, in the case of ISIS, I mean, it seems to me that that their ideology is both authoritarian and and uh, highly pro-violence. It's almost a it's almost a kind of cult of violence, actually. Um, so that would be a reason for classifying its ideology as ideologically extremist, without committing oneself either to thinking of it as on the extreme left or on the extreme right. So the way I put it is to say that that ideological space is uh, is is like physical space actually is multi-dimensional, and an ideology can come out as extremist along one dimension, but not extremist. Um, along a different dimension, or you can have two ideologies that are at opposite ends of one dimension, but at the same end as a different dimension. Right. So the fact that you're able to carve up the conceptual landscape here with respect to different ideologies and all these different ways, this is kind of a problem for this approach to extremism, right? Because one immediate question that I had when you were laying out the positional approach to extremism in the book was, okay, are you talking about the political spectrum in an objective sense or a kind of intersubjective sense? Because it seems like, you know, a given political view, whether it lies on the extremes of, a, let's say, the United States political spectrum, often changes throughout times, right? Some policy positions that were once considered to lie at the extreme ends might be considered ideological orthodoxy now. So um, how exactly are we uh, approaching that issue? And then another thing that jumped out to me when I was reading your chapter is you're talking about uh, yeah, where ISIS fits into this uh, conceptual space. And my initial thought was, well, ISIS doesn't even really fit onto any of these spectrums because ISIS is a form of religious extremism as opposed to political extremism. But you clarify there that this kind of dichotomy between political and religious extremism is really a false dichotomy. They're two sides of the same coin. Oftentimes, does all that yeah, sound correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So on the on the last point, I, I think I think the distinction between religious and political is is a false is a false distinction, um, and and there are um, fairly obvious ways in which um, ISIS's views are both religiously and politically extremist. Um, uh, on the, on the other questions that you raised. Um, about the, um, I think, as you put it, the sub individual or intersubjective understanding of ideological extremism. That's a very good. Uh, I mean, that's a very good question. So, so, so here are here are a couple of relevant considerations. Um, so, if you think about the um, liberal and conservative distinction. Um, in the European context versus the distinction in the American context. There are certain kind of quite relevant differences here, right? So, in the American context, I think um, two issues that play a, a major role in classifying someone as liberal or conservative are there. Well, number one, attitudes to gun control, and number two, attitude, attitudes to abortion. 
Um, so, I mean, lib- you know, liberals are, you know, I, I take it in the American sense generally in favor of, of greater gun control um, and and um, have, a, have essentially a kind of pro-choice um, view. Uh, now, in the European context, those are much less uh, salient issues. I mean, gun, gun control isn't really, isn't really an issue in, 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 in Europe um, and the left to right um, distinction is drawn in other ways. So, in the European context, in the British context, um, uh, believing in a national health service is a completely mainstream centrist position. Um, whereas in the US, believing in a national health service, I think, is more is is, is a more controversial view. So, um, so that's um, so, so that's one issue. So, so um, when you're trying to locate an ideology on the ideological spectrum, there's always got to be a sort of menu of diagnostic questions that you use to figure out where the ideology stands. And the relevant menu of diagnostic questions is going to be different uh, in different different countries and in different contexts. Um, So that's why, uh, you know, someone who will, uh, whose views might count as completely sort of moderate, mainstream, middle of the road views in the British context might count as well to the left in the American context. So that's one element of, 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 of relativity. And that's a reflection of the fact that, that, um, you know, that, that, that left and right are understood somewhat differently in these two contexts. Um, The other, um, Point that you made uh, again, I think, is a, is is a is an important point, right? So if you if you think back to uh, two major issues, uh, one is votes for women, and the other is slavery. So um, you know, uh, there was a time when people who um, campaigned for um, uh, universal adult suffrage were regarded as extremists. Um, there was a time when people who uh, campaign for the abolition of slavery were regarded as extremists or as fanatics, and indeed they describe themselves as such. Um, so uh, you know, so one way of, of of putting this would be to say that what you know what's happened is that is that um, the so-called Overton window has 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 moved. So that's um, so the Overton window is the, is an idea that associated with a, a some think tank guy called Joseph Overton who argued that. Um, what effective political parties do is that they actually just shift the terms of the debate, so that what um, you know what what counts as, as as thinkable or legitimate is 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 a is a position that's within the Overton window, um, and that the Overton window moves over time. Um, so the Overton window evidently has moved with respect to the question of whether women should have the vote and whether um, there should be um, slavery or not. Um, so I, I think that's 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 actually true. But um, on the other hand, I th- it's also worth asking whether people who were campaigning for the abolition of slavery actually really were extremists. I mean, no, no doubt they were they were described as extremists or as fanatics. No doubt they described themselves as extremists or fanatics. But it doesn't follow that that's that, that they were right. Um, uh, the people who actually were you know were who wanted to retain slavery were the actual um, uh, at least on on. on on some some readings, uh, actually, on the on the extremist side, so uh, I think in all of these cases, you know, there's it's important to be to be careful to distinguish between how positions are perceived at different times and what the actual nature of those views is. Right. So in Nazi Germany, if you were a Nazi, that made you completely mainstream, right? and if you were a you know if you were a liberal Democrat, that was you know completely not 
the mainstream view, and you might have ended up in a concentration camp for holding that view, right? But do we want to say that actually, so in relative to, you know, as it were, relative to Nazi Germany, uh, liberal democracy was an extremist position, and that the and that the Nazism wasn't. I mean, that doesn't seem to me to be at all a plausible view or something that we're committed to saying. Yeah, so maybe that's one that strikes me as one virtue of your mindset position, which we'll get more into. But whether someone counts as an extremist on that view doesn't depend upon whether their policy views are outside of the Overton window or anything like that. It can account for the fact that, yeah, the people that were fighting to abolish slavery back in the day, even though they were extremists relative to that time period, in some objective sense of the term, we don't want to say that there were extremists. Another spectrum that you brought up there was this pro-violence mm. uh, spectrum, uh, one way that we can conceptualize ideological extremism. And I think that this relates to a particular question that I wanted to ask you, and that's whether an ideology of pacifism can count as extremist. So I'm thinking about someone who just completely disavows all violence, even counterviolence that might ostensibly be justified is someone like this, do they count as an extremist? I guess, do they count as an ideological extremist in some sense? Um, well, I think that if you, if, if, you, if you take the pro-violence spectrum seriously and you think that being at either end of the pro-violence spectrum makes you an extremist, then of course pacifism isn't going is going to count as a form of extremism. Now that, you know, I, I mean, I guess in, in, in some ways is is counterintuitive but but on the other hand i mean consider the following example right so so um imagine that um uh the the, the nazis were about to invade um and you you knew exactly what the nazis were doing uh, you know what they'd done in europe you knew about the you know, the concentration camps and the holocaust and the nazis are about to invade and 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 uh, you 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 had the view that that you you know that uh, you are opposed to any violent resistance to Nazism, um, and because of your pacifist principles, uh, I don't think it's completely implausible or completely absurd to say that that's actually quite an extreme p position to take. Um, I mean, sometimes I think we, you know, the, the, the sort of view that most people hold is that there are circumstances in which violence is is legitimate in which it's justified uh, and in indeed in which it's in which it's actually sort of uh, required uh, and someone who denies that is i think not implausibly described as an extremist on on the, on the pro violence um the pro violence spectrum so i don't i don't find that a, a kind of you know particularly implausible view and I, I mean the other thing to say the other thing that's worth pointing out is that um you know some so-called pacifists. Uh, you think of Mahatma Gandhi, right, as a as, as a pacifist, and someone might say, "Well, you don't want to call Gandhi an extremist." But it, it, but as I, I many, I'm sure people know more about this than I do. But as I understand it, Gandhian pacifism was was a strategic pacifism. I mean, I think it was a policy that he adopted because he thought it would work. He thought it would work um, against uh, against British colonialism, and 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 he was right about that. Um, and 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 that is different, I think, from a kind of com a, a complete, in principle, opposition to violence in all circumstances, regardless of what one is dealing with. And uh, that wasn't Gandhi's view, and in that sense, he wasn't an extremist, even on the pro-violence spectrum. Right. So maybe he wasn't an extremist 
on the mindset conception, but he was an extremist on the methods. Con- Maybe this is a good segue to yeah. introducing the methods conception of extremism. Could you say a few words? Yeah, yeah. So the methods conception says that um, t- uh, so to be an extremist in the methods sense is simply to use or endorse the use of violent, well, of extreme methods. Let's start off with uh, with uh, with that idea. So to be a methods extremist is to use or endorse the use of extreme methods in pursuit of one's political objectives. So I'm talking here about political extremism. Now, I mean, clearly, uh, the first question that needs to be asked is, well, what's an extreme method? Now, normally in these discussions, it, it's just assumed that um, uh, extreme methods are violent methods. Therefore, a methods extremist is simply someone who uses or endorses the use of violence in support of their political objectives. Now, um, in the book, I kind of uh, want to want to make a couple of um, observations about that identification um, of extremism and violence. So the first is that I think there are extreme methods that are not violent. Um, I mean, clearly, the whole question of how you define violence is kind of complicated, and you know, we could spend a lot of time talking about that. But the example I give is of the IRA hunger strikers in uh, Northern Ireland in the 1980s. So this was a, a huge deal when a, a bunch of young IRA prisoners imprisoned by the British in Northern Ireland were campaigning for political status in the prison system. So they didn't want to be treated as as common criminals they want to be they wanted to be recognized as political prisoners um, the British government refused so a whole bunch of them went on hunger strike and one of them a, a young man called Bobby Sands refused to eat for 66 days and and died and he was one of 10 IRA hunger strikers who starved themselves to death um, now uh, starving yourself to death I don't think it well, <laughs> So there's a there's a there's a there's a reading of violence on which starving yourself to death is non-violent, um, um, but it's certainly an extreme method. Now some people say, yeah, but look, you know, wh- well, is it really true that self-starvation is non-violent? Aren't you? Aren't isn't it a form of violence against your own body? Um, so that's what that's really mm-hmm. what I had in mind when I was talking about in the complexities of the notion of violence. But but it's certainly not violence in the sense that it doesn't involve the use of physical force either against yourself or against anyone else. Um, yet self-starvation mm-hmm. is an extreme method. And I mean, if you you know if somebody wants to question that idea, I, I think what I want to say to them is, well, just try it out. Just see how easy it is to do. You know, it's, I mean, it, it takes a it's an incredible thing, right, to actually decide that you're going to, you know, go on hunger strike and see it through to the bitter end. Um, so that's an example I've of tried what... tried two-day fasting, and that's hard enough. Even that's a killer, right? So, <laughs> um, so, so, you know, that's an example of, 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 of an extreme method that's not violent. Looking at it the other way around, I think there are also cases in which um, somebody might use or endorse the use of, of violence without thereby counting as an extremist. So the example that I find uh, kind of compelling, actually, is, is the example of the ANC in apartheid-era South Africa. So the ANC um, uh, certainly um, used violence uh, in its campaign against apartheid. They called it the armed struggle. Uh, and Nelson Mandela actually has a very interesting discussion of this issue in uh, in, in his memoir, Long Walk to Freedom, where he basically says that, well, the reason we resorted to violence was and didn't follow the Gandhian model 
is that in South Africa, the Gandhian model wouldn't have worked. Nonviolence would not have been an effective way of overthrowing apartheid in, in South Africa. Uh, so we resorted to violence um, uh, because there was no alternative. Right? So, so, so the violence that the ANC used was, 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 was necessary violence, and it was violence in a just cause, the overthrowing of apartheid. Um, I mean, uh, uh, there are also questions about the proportionality of violence and the targets of violence. Um, so, so, so it, it seems to me that at least in principle, um, you know, you you could have an organisation using necessary proportional violence only against legitimate targets in pursuit of a just cause. Right? That wouldn't make them um, um, methods extremists, in in my sense. I mean, the case of the ANC is kind of complicated because they actually uh, were not as discriminating as they should have been in their selection of targets and did plant bombs in uh, civilian areas and did kill, uh, did kill civilians. Uh, and that was one respect in which um, uh, I, I think the ANC can be accused of resorting to extreme um, extreme methods. But on the other, you know, the other criteria, whether it's were its objectives just yes, was there an alternative to violence? No. Was its violence proportional? Well, I, I mean. Okay, to answer that question, you need to tell a whole story about what counts as proportionality, and that's a very difficult question. But certainly, if you think about the wrong um, that apartheid amounted to, um, then certainly in that sense, the violence employed by the ANC was proportional. Um, so uh, so I, I think that the lesson is actually that the relationship between extremism and the use of violence is kind of complicated. And so you so you know, just to recap, you can have extreme methods that are nonviolent, and you can have violence that doesn't constitute extremism uh, in a given context. Uh, but having said that, I mean, of course, in practice, the two are closely, you know, are related, are closely related. And, and, and you know, um, many, uh, if not most, ideological extremists are also pro-violence. So fascism, communism, and Islamism, to take three examples, uh, ideologies um, that have been, you know, historic, certainly very influential in the 20th century, uh, these are all pro-violence Ideologies. I mean, fascism is a, is uh, uh, glories in violence, revels in violence. Um, uh, certainly, so uh, Islamism is the same. And 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 um, you know, you only need to read a bit of Lenin to realize that uh, um, he was he was certainly pro-violence as well. So so uh, you know, there you have a, a kind of de facto link between ideological extremism in different forms and pro-violence. Okay, so yeah, one of the guiding intuitions there is that the use of violence didn't count as extremists because it was justified, but then there are other factors as well. So even if violence is justified, it still might count as extremist if it's not proportional or something yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, so, so the, the nature of the violence used is kind of relevant, you know. So, so um, you know, if you think about the ANC, you know, some of the targets that the ANC had were... You know, well, military installation. Some were, you know, some was some was property, uh, but they also uh, they also targeted shopping malls. Uh, so these are quite different targets, and I think that you know some are legitimate and some are clearly not legitimate. It was it was it was clearly wrong for the ANC to plant a bomb in a shopping mall that killed a young child. I mean, there's no there's that's that. Uh, I, I mean, the idea that that was necessary. 
uh, in the fight against apartheid. It's absurd, right? I mean, so you can talk about the necessity of violence in some kind of very broad sense, uh, but that doesn't follow from that that every individual act of violence was 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 necessary or justifiable on that basis. Okay, yeah, that makes sense, and, and it definitely it makes sense to me that that certain nonviolent movements might still count as methods extremists. Another example that struck my mind was just the civil rights movement in the United States in the 1960s, led by Martin Luther King, where there, you know, he would prep a lot of the, the activists to withstand beatings from police and police dogs. And so that they could create a spectacle on the, on TV. So people could see the injustice that's being done. Right. So they kind of had this principle of nonviolence that was operating in the background there that I think was ultimately politically effective and might qualify as extremists according to this methods conception yeah, of extremism. Yeah, yeah, that's a good that's a good example. I think I think that Gandhi had a similar a similar idea of of of, of inviting physical violence by colonial police um, against you know defenseless civilians who would just take it um, as 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 a rather extreme way of making a political point about the oppression of India by the British. Right. So let's uh, creep up on this psychological conception of extremism now that we have the ideological and the methods conception on the table. And I understand that your mindset conception is a particular, if I understand it, like subspecies of the broader psychological conception. Mm -hmm. So what, in a few words, is the psychological approach to extremism? What's the basic elevator pitch? Yeah. So, so, so the basic idea is that being an extremist is not just about what you believe; it's also about how you believe what you believe. So that's the kind of simple way of putting it. So the thought is extremists are distinguished by the fact that they have their that they hold their political beliefs in a particularly strong, passionate, inflexible, dogmatic way. So something along those lines, right? So the thought is that, you know, it doesn't it doesn't really matter where you are on the political spectrum. You can be on the left or the right or in the middle. Uh, what makes you an extremist in the psychological sense is 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 your as it were your mode of belief okay so you might think of a distinction between the form of a belief or the mode of a belief and its content um so the uh, um uh, the ideological reading of extremism really focuses on the content of one's ideological beliefs whereas the um, psychological version focuses on the con on the on the on the mode or the form of one's beliefs so that's the that's the, that's the kind of most straightforward um, way of understanding it. Um, now, uh, one thing that I thought when I came across this um, th this no notion um, is that it's far too it, well. First of all, it's a little bit unclear how we under how we are to understand the notion of a mode of believing or a way of believing something. Right. So um, that's one uh, idea that needs a lot of clarification. Um, the other thing is that is that I don't think that being an extremist is just a matter about what you believe. Um, um, and, and equally, it's not just a matter of how you believe what you believe. I, th I think there are, other, um, there are other aspects of the psychology of extremism that need to be taken into account. So I sort of start out with you know, this, this sort of way of believing approach to extremism. That's the, that's the sort of simple initial intuition. And then I kind of you know, try and... Um, uh, build up from there to a a more expansive and I think more realistic conception of what I call the extremist mindset. So to be an extremist in the psychological sense is to have an extremist mindset. And people 
in very different places on the ideological spectrum um, can both have the same extremist mindset. Now, this idea of an extremist mindset, I mean, has it's been floating around, of course, for a long time. And a classic text in this area was Eric Hoffer's book, The True Believer, which was published in the 1950s, where Hoffer is basically promoting something along the lines of an extremist mindset, although he doesn't call it that. Um, so, I, so I think, that, you know, in, in, in a way, not surprisingly, because it's quite an intuitive idea, you know, the, the, the idea that there's a kind of psychological dimension to extremism is, is, has been around for, for a long time. But it, uh, it struck me that it really needs a bit of, un, it, it needs a bit of elucidation, a bit of unpacking, and a, and, and a little bit of making it more precise. Um, and so that's what I try to do by by differentiating between different elements or components or dimensions of the extremist mindset. Yeah, and this really helped make sense of the intuition that I and I think a lot of people have that, and you know in the book, that people on opposite ends of the political spectrum, whether you're talking about you know a fascist and some extreme communist or something like that, they often tend to actually have a lot in common uh, as opposed to people in the middle of the political spectrum. Namely, they share this common mindset, even though the content of their beliefs radically differs. So I thought that was really helpful. But then you go on to say that, yeah, it's not just a matter of how you believe, though. It also is a matter of the content of what you believe. And I think you note that there are, cer there are certain people that have that believe things in a fervent manner and maybe in an uncompromising manner, but they don't qualify as extremists, which means that it can't just be a matter of just how you believe something. The content also has to be relevant as well. Can you just expand a little bit on that? Uh, yeah, I, I think that's, that, that's right. So um, if you look at these people you know, at opposite ends of the political spectrum, people who disagree on questions of ideology, but who you know, intuitively have the same mindset, it's not just that they um, um, believe in the same same way. They both, you know, that they all have passionate beliefs. I mean, I mean, someone, you know, in the middle of the political spectrum might, you know, might passionately believe in their centrist principles. Um, it's also true, I think, that people on people with it with a kind of extreme mindset, you know, have certain shared um, attitudes and preoccupations um, uh, that 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 are distinctive of the extremist mindset. Now, when you, once you start talking about attitudes and preoccupations, you're talking about something a bit more substantial than, you know, someone's way, way of believing something. So, uh, I mean, for what it's worth, I think, I think the, the idea that there are common extremist preoccupations is the one that I find, um, you know, most interesting and the one that I'm most, in, you know, most concerned to, um, to promote. Uh, so when I talk about a, you know a, a, so preoccupations um, are you know kind of bordering on obsessions right so there are things that um, the things that you're preoccupied with are the things that are very much of the you know very much of main major concern to you that occupy your occupy your attention and direct and guide your actions so one of the things I try to do is is to identify some preoccupations that I think are extremist. Um, preoccupations um, and that are shared by people whose ideological perspectives are very different. Yeah. So two of those preoccupations that you think are central to the extremist mindset are the sense of per per persecution and the sense of purity. Can you 
explain yeah. those in more detail? Yeah, so the purity preoccupation. So that seems to me to be really important. Uh, so I think that 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 extremists are all almost always preoccupied with purity in some sense or another. So there are lots of different kinds of purity. So there's um, you know so there's racial or ethnic purity. Um, there's ideological purity and there's religious purity. Um, and and um, extremists have this terrible fear of the of the mixing of categories. They have this terrible fear of what they think of as uh, of as impurity or dirtiness or uh, or pollution. Uh, and of course, there's been you know some very important work by anthropologists on 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 purity. Um, and uh, so, if you think about you know racial purity to begin with, so of course you know this was this was something that the Nazis were you know ob- obsessed with. I mean, they had you know um, uh, racial purity laws that were uh, quite. I mean. <sighs> You know, kind of complicated and 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 Byzantine, as as you know, as well as as well as repulsive. Uh, but purity was a big, you know, was a big deal for them. If you think about uh, white supremacist ideology today uh, in in the U.S., so there are white supremacist organizations that you know that want um, uh, uh, an independent uh, nation set up with 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 a pure Caucasian population, uh, and the word pure is doing important work there. Um, in the case of um, um, in in the case of ideological purity, uh, you know, again, there, you know, there's there, extremists have been obsessed with um, their commitment to and desire to implement a completely unadulterated form of their overarching ideology. So the classic case of that was the Khmer Rouge. So th- so this was this was an extremist organization that took power in 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 Cambodia in the 1970s. So they renamed it the Democratic. Republic of Kampuchea, and 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 the Khmer Rouge actually thought. I mean, this is an incredible thing, but they actually thought that um, you know, all the other so-called Marxist regimes in the world, you know, the the, the uh, Mao's China and the Soviet Union, that these weren't the real deal. You know, that they hadn't they hadn't really implemented a kind of the correct, that is to say, the pure, unadulterated form of Marxism. So that's what the Khmer Rouge tried to do. So you know, so they thought Marxism meant no private property. Right. So there was really no private property. The state decided everything. Right? It decided who you married. It decided where you ate, uh, what you ate. I mean, so only communal eating was allowed. It decided what you, you know, what what you what you wore. Uh, absolutely incredible. And this was all defended on the basis that this is this is the this is pure communism. What we want is pure communism, and not even not even the the Chinese communists, according to them, you know, were were. were were pure communists. Now, this is an example of this purity preoccupation. In that case, an ideological version of it. And then, of course, there are people who are obsessed with, you know, with religious purity, with being pure, you know, pure Christians or pure Muslims or whatever it is. So, I think there is this kind of purity preoccupation that also connects with something else in extremism, which is their, which is their obsession with virtue. I mean, this is a rather strange thing, but um, you know, it, it, extremists. You know, very often have the idea that in virtue of their pursuit of purity, that makes them virtuous. Um, so the you know so, so 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 virtue consists in fighting against adulteration. It, f- it consists in fighting against the mixing of categories, fighting against uh, you know pollution, 
um, or dilution of one's um, basic basic ideals. Um, um, and 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 you know, uh, and and that's why uh, you know many of these extremists that I've been describing actually regard their opponents not just as wrong, but as as sort of sinful actually. You know, as as, as you know as 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 traitors to the cause, as as uh, um, you know, and and therefore as meriting um, very rough treatment. Uh, so, so, so that I think is a kind of you know is a package deal. Some version of uh, the purity preoccupation, uh, uh, together with some version of a preoccupation with one's own virtue. I think these are elements of the uh, of the extremist mindset, and there are many, many examples historically that one can point to uh, of that of that preoccupation. Another thing you say in the book is that this pure, this preoccupation with purity leads a lot of these extremists to be completely uncompromising. Like they're unwilling to compromise yeah. because of this preoccupation. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So, so um, um, you know, so, so compromise, uh, as they see it, is is a form of dilution, right? So if you so if you compromise, you 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 sort of accept a, um, a, a kind of milder or weaker version. Of what you would ideally want, um, and 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 that's why uh, hostility to compromise, I think, is a kind of core uh, extremist attitude because it 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 you know it goes against uh, it goes against purity, and of course it also explains why. I, I mean, if you're a kind of wishy-washy middle of the road liberal, then you probably think that actually being willing to compromise is kind of a good thing, right? <laughs> and that. Um, you know, um, a decent society needs people to be willing to compromise up to a point. Uh, uh, whereas extremists, of course, think that um, being uncompromising is 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 a political virtue, and being compromising is a political vice, uh, and it's a political vice because it detracts from um, you know from from purity. So yeah, what about this persecution element? Yeah, so I think extremists generally have a kind of persecution complex. So, so well, um, let, let me let me let me qualify that. So, so they certainly promote the idea that they and their and, and people on their side of the argument are victims of persecution um, uh, and have been humiliated by their persecution. And what they are doing is fighting back against their persecution and fighting back against their humiliation. So the most, I mean, in a way, the most amusing and most absurd example of this um, is the is is the ideology of so-called incels. Uh, uh, this is involuntarily celibate, essentially males, um, um, uh, who are all part of the the so-called men's rights movement. So these are people who believe that men um, are essentially victims of persecution by women. Uh, that's the basic. That's the basic idea of of, of the ideology, uh, and that the rights of that the rights of men have been uh, are being are, are being um, violated uh, in some way, uh, and that society is obsessed with women's rights and women's interests and so on and so forth. So, so, so these people see themselves as you know as as you know men. We men are being persecuted. Uh, uh, we are the oppressed. Uh, we are being humiliated. We are being we are being attacked by the femi Nazis, as they like to call them, uh, and we're fighting back. So that's a kind of classic classic example um, of of 
a kind of persecution complex and a kind of preoccupation with with um, with victimhood. Uh, and what's interesting about that case, and and I think important about that case, is that it it's all total nonsense. Right? I, I mean, the persecution that they're talking about is 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 imaginary persecution. They so, so what what's driving them are fantasies of persecution, fantasies of oppression. Um, so uh, uh, similarly, of course, you, you now uh, you know a big thing in, in, on the far right in in America and in Europe is this idea that the white race is being you know oppressed by by you know by um, by, by Muslims uh, who you know who are taking over their countries and um, you know, oppressing them in some way or another. So that again is a kind of common theme. Again, a case of um, uh, of imaginary um, imaginary. Persecution. Uh, so, I, I think it's an interesting question, actually. What, well, what do you say about cases where the persecution is genuine? <laughs> right. So, I think so. In the case of apartheid, that's what I was going to add. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so in the case of apartheid era South Africa, I mean, you know, the majority population was actually being persecuted um, by the um, right. by the, by by the white minority, uh, and of course they were preoccupied by their persecution. And I want to say that in that case, that does not. Uh, amount to psychological extremism, um, precisely because mm. they were they were responding to something real. They were responding to something genuine. So you know the 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 the, the victimhood that uh, extremists are preoccupied with is 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 um, not genuine um, victimhood, and that's part of what makes it um, an element of a kind of extremist psychology. Mm, so yeah, I think this relates to another question that I wanted to ask you, and that's whether extremism can be a virtue as opposed to a vice. Uh, you, you obviously wrote a paper mm. about this, mm. which we read in the class that I'm currently taking. And intuitively, it seems like the answer might be yes, because you have, as you say, people using what you would say extreme methods that might have ostensibly an extremist mindset that are trying to escape conditions of real oppression and maybe, you know, centrist neoliberalism isn't the correct ideological prescription in that kind of case. Mm. Maybe the end, uh, maybe you do need more of an extremist mindset in order to really facilitate the necessary societal change that needs to occur. From what you just said, it sounds like you might not count people like that as mm. being extremists. Right, right. Therefore, extremism might not be a virtue because those people actually aren't extremists. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. That that that's right. I mean, so so on the idea that extremism is a virtue. So there's a quotation from Philip Roth novel American Pastoral, which I like, of a, a character saying, "Sometimes you have to go to the extreme." Uh, and so this is the idea that right. you know this is the idea that you know sometimes there's no alternative. Sometimes you've got to be an extremist. Um, and of course, uh, uh, a, no, a number of the um, uh, abolitionists in 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 the states regarded themselves as uh, actually as fanatics, um, uh, and it and you know you might want to say, well, look, isn't you know isn't fanaticism, isn't extremism against slavery a virtue? Um, so, so this is you know this is an idea that you find in Martin Luther King Jr. and you know a whole bunch of other people saying that you know um, extremism in pursuit of justice is no is no vice right or some, something along those something along those lines. Um, so what what I want to say a, a, a about those cases is that is that actually people who were uh, campaigning against slavery actually didn't have a, 
um, many, if any, of these extremist preoccupations that I was talking about. There's no purity preoccupation there. They weren't. They weren't against slavery because they were, you know, they, they were preoccupied with some form of some form of uh, some form of you know racial purity. Far from it. Um, of course, they were preoccupied with victimhood, but the slaves actually were victims. Uh, so this, this is quite different from the case of you know, kind of fantasy, you know, fantasy persecution. Uh, it's true that they were uncompromising. I mean, that is true. So if you think that being uncompromising is is um, you know makes you an extremist, then uh, that's going to be one sense in which you know campaigners against slavery were were extremists. But actually, I think even that uh, is, is kind of complicated. So so I've been influenced in my thinking about this topic by the work on compromise of Avishai Margalit, a great Israeli philosopher. So uh, what Margalit argues um, about compromise is that in general, compromise is a good thing and compromise for, for the sake of peace is a very good thing. Um, but there are certain compromises that uh, are not good and which should be rejected in all circumstances. And these are what he calls rotten compromises. So a rotten compromise in Margaret's sense is an agreement to establish or maintain a regime of cruelty or inhumanity. So, um, uh, so campaigners um, for uh, the abolition of slavery uh, were, were certainly offered a whole bunch of compromises, um, um, but they rejected them. Because they saw that you know all of the you know the, the compromises that they were 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 being offered were all in Margaret's sense rotten compromises. They were all compromises that were actually designed to maintain, in perhaps an attenuated form, a regime of cruelty and inhumanity, right? namely a watered-down version of slavery. Um, and the abolitionists weren't having it, uh, and they were right not to have it. They were completely uncompromising on that question. Um, and I want to say that 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 didn't make them extremists, didn't make them fanatics, because they were not opposed to compromise as such. Um, what they were opposed to was the making of rotten compromises. Uh, and it, indeed, one of the one of the kind of interesting features of of, of the extremist mindset is the tendency to regard all compromise as rotten compromise. Uh, um, but uh, that's an illusion, right? I mean, of course, there there are there are compromises that are rotten, and there are compromises that aren't rotten. Uh, and and the fact that you won't you won't go for you won't accept rotten compromises does not make you uh, does not not make you an extremist. So I think that instead of talking about you know campaigners against slavery or campaigners you know for women's rights, instead of talk, calling them extremists, you know, or fanatics, which I think is you know kind of completely unhelpful and inaccurate, I think it's perfectly okay to describe them as radicals. Um, so they they were certainly radicals in the sense that they were you know campaigning for a fundamental change in existing social arrangements using extra institutional means. Uh, that's radicalism, uh, and that's fine. I mean, ra you know, radicalism is a good thing, as I see it. And indeed, you, um, radicalism was essential to tackle injustices um, like uh, like like slavery. And indeed, radicalism, I think, would you know, has an important role to play uh, in the world today. In you know, in, in um, uh, you know, addressing you know, addressing genuine uh, you know, genuine issues. So, for example, you know, if you think of if you think of you know the climate emergency as you know as as a dire threat to the future of future of humanity, which it is, um, you might want to think that you know drastic measures are called for, and that might include certain forms of political action that are 
um, not uh, that are you know that are extra institutional. So 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 I'm not. This is not intended as an argument against political radicalism at all. Uh, but I don't find it. Uh, you know, I don't find it helpful actually to say that. Um, um, you know, um, the fact that uh, the fact that the abolitionists were not willing to compromise with the slave owners that that, that did not make them extremists. It did not make them fanatics. Right. Yeah, I think you might have just answered my next question as well, because I was going to ask, even if extremism isn't a virtue on an individual level, might it be a virtue on a group level in the sense that if you know you, if you have a group that's completely composed of people who have a neoliberal ideology, it might be worth having someone with a genuine extremist mindset within that group to add a little bit of ideological diversity. But, and correct me if I'm wrong, might you say that it might be worth having a radical in that group, yeah. maybe not someone yeah. with a genuine extremist mindset? Yeah, yeah, no, that, that's, you know, that's, that's, that's exactly what I think. I mean, you, you know, you use the expression neoliberal at, at, at various times, and I, th- I think there are various, I mean, the, <laughs> of course, there's neoconservative as well, that is, is, another, is another label that's used. And, and, I, and I, I think actually the relationship between those views and extremism is, uh, is complicated, and I certainly wouldn't regard them as you know as as sort of archetypes of 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 centrist positions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. I, for some reason that's just the archetype that comes to my head. Yeah, but, uh, yeah, yeah. No, yeah. You just been liberal, that. right? <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, thus far, we've been talking about the different preoccupations associated with the extremist mindset. There are also other different components here that you talk about: extre- characteristic extremist attitudes emotions, styles of thinking. I thought maybe we could just talk about that a bit. So for example, you say that extremists have a, uh, they're practically indifferent to consequences. They're prone to conspiracy thinking and utopian thinking. Could you just expand upon these? Yeah, these a bit? yeah, yeah. So, so, so starting off with attitude. So we've talked about we talked about pro violence. We've talked about uh, being being against compromise. Uh, intolerance, of course, is another classic extremist attitude. Uh, Anti pluralism. That means um, uh, an, an, un, an unwillingness to accept that rational people can have different ends. Um, so, so that's what I mean by, um, by, by anti-pluralism. Indifference to adverse consequences. So, you know, the, the you know, the classic, um, extremist, um, uh, view is that, uh, you can't, uh, make an omelet without breaking eggs, you know, so they, so they regard it as kind of perfectly okay to, um, uh, to sacrifice, uh, to sacrifice their own interests or the interests of, of, of other people in pursuit of their, uh, in, of, of their end. Um, uh, they're also in favor of the imposition of their ideas on other people. So extremists are also, um, at least in, in many cases, uh, impositionists. So th- these are examples of what I call extremist attitudes. I also talk about characteristic extremist um uh, thinking now. I mean, of course, the distinction between attitudes and thinking in, in, in preoccupations isn't a clear-cut uh, distinction, but but certainly there are forms of thinking that are, I, I, I believe, as uh, are closely associated with with extremism. So conspiracy thinking. So if you if you if you think about fascism, Islamism, and uh, and and Marxism, they are all in different ways. They all they all engage in conspiracy thinking of one form or another, and indeed consp- commitment to conspiracy theory. Certainly, on the extreme extreme right, and 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 certainly in the case of uh, um, Islamist extremists, I think conspiracy theories play an important part 
in, in their mindset. There's also um, a catastrophizing. There's always this idea that you know your in group is on the verge of a catastrophe, and 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 everything is everything is kind of conceptualized in relation to that catastrophe. Um, and that's another kind of um, a characteristic mode of thinking that you find. Uh, with extremism, and then the last category was emotions, um, and 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 so I think you know part part of the extremist mindset is is you know extremists are angry, right? So anger is a so anger is a big part of the extremist mindset, and that goes hand in hand with the fact that they're so preoccupied with their own humiliation, right? Or what they see as their own humiliation. Uh, the humiliation victimhood preoccupation also results in self pity. So I think self pity is a big thing with 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 extremists. Um, you know, we are the victims. We're being persecuted. We're being oppressed. So there's a there's a huge element of of sort of feeling sorry for themselves, and of course resentment, uh, uh, resentment about their 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 perceived um, um, oppression. So 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 these are the kind of four dimensions of of the of, of of a mindset so your mindset is 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 a function of your preoccupations your emotions your attitudes and your ways of thinking um i'm quite open to the idea that there may be more i, I mean i don't at all want to say these are you know that's all there is you know someone can come up with something else that deserves to be in there that's fine by me and then the hard work is is done by actually spelling out, you know, what is meant when you so when I talk about, you know, the extremist preoccupations, what are they? So I've given some examples. Maybe there are others. And 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 you know, ditto with the other categories that I that I've mentioned. So so the thought is that we we you know we need to kind of flesh out this idea of a mindset by a combination of um philosophical thinking, um uh, 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 but actually also studying you know, actual extremists in the world. Um, so we need to, you know, so, you know, we, you, you, you kind of need to come up with an account of the extremist mindset that actually fits the mindset of individuals and organizations that uh, it, it, at least intuitively one would think of as, as having an extremist mindset. Yeah. So when I was initially reading your book, as a philosopher, I immediately went into counterexample mode when considering these different four main components of the extremist mindset. But then I realized, wait, I don't think he's trying to lay out a set of necessary and sufficient conditions for what qualifies as an extremist, right? You're just saying, here are four components that you need to have at least you know, some of them, maybe a majority of them. Is that right? Yeah. So, 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 so exactly. I mean, so it, I'm not talking about necessary insufficient conditions. Uh, I'm talking about a, a cluster of mindset features. And to be an extremist, you need to have, you know, a, a, a good number of, of elements in the cluster. Um, if you look at the individual components that I've listed, I mean, I, I think it actually is a good question whether any of them, you know, is, is it actually deserves to be regarded as absolutely uh, uh, in, indispensable right so, so if you think about the you know the purity preoccupation I mean could you be an extremist but not be preoccupied with purity well yeah I can imagine I mean I don't find that impossible to imagine um, uh, mm-hmm. but if you think about some of these attitudes I mean like intolerance right uh, uh, or uh, being uncompromising I mean imagine someone who's you know very tolerant and very compromising right could that I mean, would that person be an extremist? Well, that's a bit, you know, in the psychological sense, it's starting to look a little bit forced to say, well, you could still have someone who's a psychological extremist. I mean, they might still have all these, you know, they might still have a preoccupation with victimhood and purity and all that. 
but somehow still managed to be you know tolerant and compromising. So I, I think there's room for kind of genuine discussion here about you know well you know are, are there elements that I've identified that are actually essential or should we just have a kind of pure cluster theory like here's a whole bunch of stuff and to be an extremist you need to have enough of this stuff but no you know no no particular component is essential. So I think that's a question. I want to leave open. I mean, the other thing I want to say, which is a kind of methodological point, is that um, I, I just don't find it, you know, helpful to um, to think of these issues using the lens of kind of, you know, hardcore philosophical analysis. I mean, we are talking here about a real world phenomenon, a real world phenomenon. And, you know, we are actually trying to understand, you know, we should be trying to actually understand the world. And that means that, you know, this is one of these cases where, you know, to do, to be a philosopher extreme of extremism, you actually need to know stuff. <laughs> I mean, it's not enough just to just you know just to kind of engage in kind of armchair reflection. You actually need to know about actual extremism. So, what is it that you know? What does ISIS you know? What does ISIS really want? What do the Nazis really stand for? What about the Khmer Rouge? You know, what about you know what about uh, the IRA? What about the ANC? So, the book is full of examples um, of of individuals and. and and groups, and these are these are these are examples that, you know, are not just there as sort of toy philosophy examples. Um, they're real world examples that actually, sh you know, help to shape my, uh, you know, shape my thinking about these subjects. Um, and and I think it's a, I think it's actually you know like a, a a good thing in philosophy to actually look at real cases because they actually apart from anything else tend to be you know way more complicated than that than the made-up cases that philosophers uh, like to talk about you know so if you're thinking about you, you know the anc or something like that you know it's and asking about well you know should we classify them as extremists or not what does it tell us about extreme you know what does that uh uh uh, group tell us about extremism. The answer is it's really complicated, right? It's really complicated because these things, you know, these things are complicated, and 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 uh, you can't get away with uh, just doing your armchair philosophical analysis, and you're not going to get anywhere if you just try to come up with a list of, you know, necessary and sufficient, uh, you know, conditions for being an extremist. I mean, that's just a boring project generally, I think, and it's uh, certainly a, a misguided project in this context. Yeah, this is a critique that I share about analytic philosophy, just how so much of it seems to involve this high-level conceptual engineering that's taking place in this abstract realm, completely detached from the real world. And I think that's partially why I'm increasingly interested in more applied issues in the philosophy of technology stuff, uh, perhaps. But um, another question that I had here is, is there a particular personality type that's prone to adopt an extremist mindset or to engage in conspiracy thinking? You're very clear that in the book that this extremist mindset, it's not a mental disorder, right? Mm. You might having a certain mental disorder might predispose you yeah. perhaps to have this extremist mindset, but itself is not a mental disorder. Yeah. Is there yeah. anything to say here about certain personality types being disposed towards this kind of thinking? Um, I, I I I just don't know. I think that's that would that would be an empirical an empirical question that that you know psychologists might want to personality psychologists might want to want to discuss. I I think I'm kind of skeptical about that approach, um, partly because it 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 seems to me that you know there's a kind of complex um, relationship between 
having an extremist mindset and having an extremist ideology. You know, so one, you know, if you think about, well, so do people have an extremist ideology because they have an extremist mindset or do they have an extremist mindset because they have an extremist ideology? Well, of course it can, you know, it can work in both, it can work in both directions. So I think that, that, you know, commitment to an extremist ideology or being tempted by an extremist ideology can reinforce or promote uh, an extremist mindset. And in that case, the explanation for the fact that someone has an extremist mindset uh, isn't isn't going to be in terms of some, you know, uh, in terms of personality psychology, it's going to be more to do with the dynamics of the relationship between mindset and uh, and substantive, uh, substantive ideology. I think that that you know, in terms of just you know, leaving aside, you know, kind of technical personality psychology. Um, I mean, I think in our day in our daily lives, I think most of us can think of people who um, you know display some elements of this extremist mindset. Um, I, I, you know, I, I think you know, even even if you just think about your own friends, right? I think you know, clearly some people are more prone to self pity and resentment. You know than others. Some people are more prone to think of themselves as victims than others. Um, I think that you know I, that seems to me to be quite kind of quite plausible. But uh, whether I want to, you know, whether one should end up by saying that you know there's a kind of personality type or something that psychologists would recognise as a personality type that predisposes one to have an extremist mindset. I think I just want to leave that. Uh, I, I just want to leave that um, open. Um, but actually, just. But just going back a step to the thing you were saying earlier on about your own interest in in uh, applying philosophy uh, to the real world and your own interest in philosophy of technology, I mean, I I think that that's really important, and I think it's you know obviously becoming more of a thing in philosophy. But for I think it also requires a real kind of culture change in philosophy. I I, I think there is still a tendency in philosophy to regard. You know the people doing the the hardcore the hardcore theory the hardcore you know analytic metaphysics or whatever it is as doing you know as the real talented philosophers uh, and people doing more applied stuff as 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 kind of a bit wishy washy and not you know not quite as intellectually serious as the rest. Um, I mean you have this I same sort of, you know you have the same class distinction in other fields you know so in economics I have a friend who's an economist who's always telling me that you know that 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 you know, in economics, theory always does. You know, theory is always regarded as better than um, you know applied economics. Um, you know, there's a kind of there's a kind of intellectual hierarchy, and I think there's an intellectual hierarchy, you know, in in philosophy too. So if you're thinking about a young you know young philosopher getting in, you know, getting getting into the business, um, you know, it's not necessarily going to be a great career move to do lots of applied stuff. Uh, but but you know, thing I think things are changing. I think things are moving. Uh, you know, things are starting to move, and I think there are more and more people doing, you know, doing PhDs and and you know, in early stages of their career, doing stuff that I, you know, that I would regard as as at the more applied, more real world end of the spectrum. And and I hope that's a, you know, I really hope that's a, a trend that that you know that continues and that it results in a real change in 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 the culture of philosophy and the class distinctions that exist within philosophy. Yeah, no, I, I definitely get that sense too just being in the discipline for a few years now but yeah my sense is that it seems to be changing for example in the realm of philosophy of language my understanding is that a lot of the work there used to assume idealized language interactions where you just have one uh, interlocutor engaging with another interlocutor there's no 
complicated power differentials. There's no testimonial injustice going yeah, on. Yeah. But now it seems like there's a work that's focusing on how language is actually applied in the real world, yeah. dealing with issues like propaganda and stuff like yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. So that's you know, that, that that's that's a hugely important development. And you know, if you think about you know Miranda Fricker's work on epistemic injustice, now you know, hugely influential and very much part of the philosophical mainstream. Uh, and and you, you know, it's 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 it. it clearly a kind of more socially and politically aware approach to basic questions in epistemology um, than you would have found, you know, 20 or 30, 20 or 30 years ago. So I think these are all very, you know, kind of very positive, uh, very positive developments. Um, and I think they're partly a response to the fact that, you know, that certainly in the last few years, I mean, the world seems to have been gone, seems to have gone and gone crazy, right, in the last 10 or 20 years. Uh, and, <laughs> and, and, and and I think it's just, I yeah. think it, it must be just harder and harder, you know, not to want to engage with some of these issues uh, in, in one's work. I mean, lots right. of people, lots of people manage it all the same. <laughs> lots of people manage not to engage with them. But, but I think, a lot of people find it kind of quite hard. Um, so it's a very different world, you know. When I was a grad student, I mean, I was a grad student in the uh, in 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 the in the mid 1980s, um, and and uh, that was a you know that was a that was, there was a Cold War, of course, but that s somehow the rules of the game were kind of clearer in that context, um, and and uh, you know we, we weren't living in a in 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 a situation of you know epistemic anarchy, which is what uh, was you know <laughs> has been unleashed in the last in the last few years. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I think you know that perhaps partly explains the need that more and more people in the profession feel to actually engage with these issues. Yeah, and it also just seems to me that there's more opportunities to make novel contributions in these applied areas because they're so new. I was originally I originally got into philosophy because I was captured by the hard problem of consciousness. I wrote my undergrad dissertation on panpsychism. Yeah. yeah. And I was thinking about writing my dissertation on that, but I didn't really know how I could like make a contribution here, you know. I kind of mm. just agreed with a lot of the existing arguments. Mm. So I figured, mm. okay, how how can I pivot to a lane here where I might be able to do something, you know. So yeah, yeah, I, 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 I think that's right. And I, I mean, maybe, maybe it's worth saying how the how the extremism book kind of came about. Um, I mean, I was actually approached by the by by the philosophy editor of Routledge uh, three years ago, who knew I was working on terrorism, and who said, "Well, I'm really looking for you know for a book on the philosophy of extremism. Would you be interested in writing one?" Um, and and I hadn't really thought about it as a as 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 a topic actually at that point. I only thought about it in relation to terrorism, but not as a topic in its own right. And and, and he said to me that, well, look, this is a, you know this is a really important subject. Surely philosophy has something to say about it. Um, but you know, where is the philosophical literature on extremism? Uh, um, where are the books about this subject? Um, and, and there, you know, there are there isn't anything. I mean, you know, there's you know, there's the classics. I mean, Hume and Hegel and Kant all had things to say about fanaticism, um, but but extremism is you know kind of hardly a hot topic in philosophy. And what he wanted was a book that actually, you know, came up with a kind of philosophical analysis. And one of the you know one of the joys of writing about this subject, from my point of view, is not just that it's it's super interesting and I think super important. But the very fact that there aren't hundreds of other people who've written about it actually also makes it much easier to, you know, to make genuine progress in the area. 
Um, and, uh, you know, mm-hmm. as, as you were saying, you know, if you're going to talk about the hard problem of consciousness and want to make a, a, you know, a novel and worthwhile contribution to that field, all I can say is good luck with that. Um, but uh, <laughs> in these sorts of fields uh, that, 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 that I'm interested in, that I guess that you're interested in, you know, progress is possible. Um, and that's, that's, that's something to bear in mind as well. Yeah, so thinking about how the real world affects these issues, do you think, do you get the sense that extremism is on the rise, just gen- generally speaking, throughout the world? And, and and I know this is a big question, but what role do you see social media and the internet playing in fostering extremist mindsets and leading to what seems to be an explosion of conspiracy thinking and a complete mm. shattering of our social epistemology right, with the with the fake news? the disinformation campaigns, the propaganda, all of that. Mm. Do you agree that all of this has kind of led to an explosion of extremism? How do you see it? Well, I think it's just really complicated. I mean, so, so on the question of whether extremism is on the rise, I mean, on the rise relative to what? You know, so if you think about, you know, the the 1930s in 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 Europe, uh, I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of extremism about at that time, you know, of a very serious kind that resulted in you know resulted in you know in a world war. Um, so, are we talking about you know a rise of extremism that you know parallels the rise of extremism at that at that point in in European history? It's not clear that you know it's not it's not clear that that actually we're in the same ballpark, although there are people who you know who may say that we're he- heading in that direction. So, I I, I think you know talk about whether we're witnessing um, a, a, a rise in historical terms of extremism to kind of unprecedented you know, levels, I think one needs to have a bit of historical perspective about this. But having said that, certainly if you're looking at, you know, if, if, you're, if your historical framework is, let's say, the last you know, 40 or 50 years, um, you certainly have moved from um, what people used to refer to, in, in, certainly in the European context, is the post-war consensus, where there was, you know, large-scale agreement on a lot of kind of core issues. Um, uh, America is a slightly different case because I think American political culture has always been more polarized than European political culture. Um, but, but you know, certainly relative to that, we have seen a, a massive explosion in. Uh, extremist uh, thinking and extremist ideologies. I think that's absolutely true. So then you have the question, okay, so why is that? And what's the role of social media been in, in that? Um, and I don't doubt that social media has played, you know, has played a very, uh, a very important part in all of this. Um, I slightly wonder whether whether all the all the talk about the role of social media has been a little bit exaggerated, I mean, so you know, so for example, if you think about Twitter, right? So people talk a lot about about the role of Twitter in promoting, you know, intemperate political language and polarization and so on and so forth. But how many people actually are use Twitter, right? I mean, it's a it's a very small number of people. I mean, the percentage I I don't have the figure at the top of my head, but the but the percentage of Americans who are on Twitter is actually actually pretty small. And similarly. In the in in the case of you know, in, in the case of Europe, so uh, I mean certainly we know where you know where I live in a rural part of southern England. I don't I don't encounter many people who who, who use Twitter. I don't encounter that many people who use Facebook actually for that matter. Um, so um, so I, I I think it's a, it 
it, it's possible to get a little bit carried away with uh, carried away with that. Um, although I don't, you know, I don't want to kind of say that this is an import, isn't an important factor in in political polarization. But but I I think one needs to just have a balanced view. Um, uh, the other question is, well, all right, well, su- supposing you sort of bracket the role of social media and think more generally about, well, why has there been greater political polarization? You know, why, 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 you know, why is extremism on the rise? Why are conspiracy theories on the rise? Um, and I think it, 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 the explanation of that is 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 really complicated. But but you know, part of the answer is that is that globalization, I think, has had political and social and economic impacts that have been absolutely massive and were unanticipated um and 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 um you know i think it's created so for example in the uh, in in the american context a kind of uh, white working class that regards itself as disenfranchised in some way or another and very much very susceptible to uh, you know, Trumpian um, propaganda of one sort or another. The jobs are being shifted away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Immigrants right. are taking their jobs. That's right. The Mexicans are taking it, taking their taking our jobs. They're all coming over. You know, they're all coming over here, uh, and and you know, uh, all all our industries have gone, and it's all been being produced in China, and so on and so forth. And 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 you know, I think that's created. Um, uh, a fertile ground for extremism, and all the more so because actually, globalization has had these effects. This isn't this isn't a complete fantasy. I mean, I think I think globali- globalization has had massive a massive impact on uh, you know the cultures and economies of these of these countries, and I think it's uh, and I think it's created is created a kind of uh, fertile ground for. People, you know, for extremists to promote their ideas um, because they can actually appeal to people's sense of, 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 you know, of resentment and humiliation and and and, and so on, and it, and and of course, you know, in those cases, some of the at least some of the uh, some of the humiliation is genuine. Uh, some of the resentment has um, ha- has good ground. So I think what has happened is that you you know you've you've had. Basically, political operators uh, of the, uh, particularly of the far right, both in Europe and in America, who've been, you know, very astute at exploiting these trends and these developments um, to promote their own political agenda. And I think that's that's been a major factor in 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 the rise, certainly of of extremism of the right, in the rise of white the uh, white supremacism. And that story about extremism. Um, is is not a story about social media. It's not a story about the influence of Twitter. It's about what used to be called the fundamentals. I agree that globalism seems to be a driving force here. And I do think that this question as to whether social media, the impact of social media and all this is over-exaggerated is an interesting question. There is a sense in which I think even though a small proportion of the population is on social media, they're having an outsized influence in the national discourse. It seems yeah. like a lot of people who are working at mainstream news yeah. agencies will take their talking points from yeah. you know yeah. the more radical voices that dominate social media and you know people talk about how yeah personalization algorithms can lead one to become immersed in echo chambers online that can precipitate conspiracy thinking and another piece of this seems to be that it seems like there's been widespread loss of trust in mainstream institutions and that this has made people more open to conspiracy thinking and 
extremist mindsets. And I'm not sure what exactly the cause is of this loss of trust in mainstream institutions, but do you see that as well as being a part of the picture here? Yeah, absolutely. And and if you talk about you know the causes of the loss of trust, um, <clears throat> uh, let me give you two uh, two causes or uh, two factors that I think have been hugely influential. One is the 2007-2008 financial crisis. I think that led to a huge loss of trust. Uh, and I, I think the problem there was not was not just the fact of the crisis, the fact that it you know that it happened and had the consequences that it happened, but also that that. I think the, the completely justified feeling that that no one was really held to account for it, um, that um, essentially the people who were responsible for all that got away with it, uh, and I think that 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 had a huge impact on um, um, pe- people's people's uh, trust of the mainstream. Uh, and going further back, I think the you know the 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 Iraq War debacle is another another um, in, in, relevant factor. Yeah, the, the whole business about weapons of mass destruction not being there, despite <clears throat> being told by our governments that this was uh, why the war was being fought. Uh, again, I think uh, led to, led to um, a diminution in in, in trust. I mean. They're just two kind of two factors. I think um, you know the broader impacts of globalization uh, are, are also relevant here. You know the feeling that people have that their lives have been affected in fundamental ways that they didn't choose, that they didn't vote for, that they didn't even knew about, that they didn't even know about. I think that's another thing that has led people um, in this in 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 this uh, in this direction. Um, so I think there are kind of I think the story about the lack of trust is really is really you know is really complicated, um, but I, I I know that in philosophy there's a you know people like to talk about you know echo chambers and social media and epistemic bubbles and all that stuff and that's all very you know that's all very interesting and no doubt important, but I, I think it's worth also just remembering that there are also these much more big picture factors that are that that you know that are at play here. Um, and your point about um, you know Twitter and so on having a disproportionate impact, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, it, it's just, you know, as I was saying earlier, I, don't, I think the vast majority of Americans are not on Twitter. But if you look at the Americans who are on Twitter or the Europeans who are on Twitter, it's essentially the sort of educated political class. You know, the media, you know, the, the, the media and the politicians and the academics. Uh, you know, they very often on on Twitter, and 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 a lot of the stuff that we you know we hear about. Uh, is is uh, you know from from you know from those sources are the people who are very sensitized by sensitized to what's on Twitter by the fact that they themselves are on Twitter. I mean, if you're not on Twitter, then uh, you know all these Twitter pylons that 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 happen don't really mean you know they don't really mean anything. They don't they're not really going to affect you at all. Um, uh, so yeah, but if you are on Twitter, it can seem like that's the whole story. Yeah, I mean, in terms of polarization. Well, absolutely, you know, absolutely, and if uh, you know, particularly um, if, like me, you you make uh, you make statements that you know are seen as p- kind of politically controversial, um, you know, that can that that can cause real trouble on social media. Um, so I'm st- I still get people, you know, uh, sending me <laughs> abusive messages about my views on conspiracy theories. For example, uh, these are these are mainly conspiracy theories sending me these messages, and that's that's something you just have to kind of right. you just have to learn to suck it up, basically. Yeah, that's the. Uh... 
you have to know what kind of war zone you're entering yeah, <laughs> when you log yeah. on. Yeah, and make sure you have um, thick skin before you get in there. Yeah, well, I, I just, I honestly just use it to like promote podcasts. I don't really yeah. ever yeah. tweet or try to engage in yeah. Twitter. Yeah. yeah, but no, I definitely agree that there seems to be this sense that people are being left behind. The world is changing way too fast in ways that they can't keep up with. There are these uh, coastal global elites. Yeah that yeah. control the world and that are manipulating the levels of power. All of that seems yeah. to be uh, responsible for a lot of these grievances. Here, yeah, for sure. yeah. 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 Um, the last question that I had is um, how might we combat extremism? Like what's one method that we could use to try to uh, make some progress on de-radicalizing people? Yeah. Education. <clears throat> well, education. So, and I, on a yeah, yeah, all of that. I think I think that you know we also need to have a kind of counter narrative to extremism. So I think one thing that leads people uh, into extremism, apart from the psychological factors that I've talked about, is is you know is the seductiveness of various extremist narratives. You know, so so the so the far right, for example, um, has an you know has a has a narrative which it addresses to <clears throat> people who you know feel that they've been hard done by. Uh, and these narratives, you know, are, 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 you know, can be, you know, can be very seductive. Um, I, there's, there's, you know, there's a, there's a, there's an Al Qaeda narrative which has um, uh, clearly, you know, influenced people to engage in acts of terrorism. Uh, and, and I think that that, you know, what we really need is to understand these narratives, understand what makes them so effective, and develop effective counter narratives. I think that's that's going to be a really important. Um, important and you know incredibly difficult job uh but but uh, you know a counter narrative that actually manages manages to promote um you know the 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 virtues of tolerance and and um uh d democracy essentially sounds great well thank you so much for your time professor i really appreciate it